0: You can now find all of C-SPAN's nonfiction-focused podcasts in one place, the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed. Follow now and you'll get all of C-SPAN's podcasts that are nonfiction book-related every week. I'm Shannon. And I'm Rachel. And as part of the podcast team here at C-SPAN, we wanted to make it easy for our nonfiction book lovers to access all of our offerings in one place. Hear from authors like Kadada Williams on her book, I Saw Death Coming, Joan Biskubic, and her latest, Nine Black Robes, or Neil King, who shared his walking journey from D.C. to New York City in his book, American Ramble. Featured programs will include Book Notes Plus, Q&A, Afterwards, and About Books. You can follow the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed wherever you get your podcasts. Former President Theodore Roosevelt died on January the 6th, 1919, he was sixty years old. Author William Elliot Hazelgrove in his book chose to focus mostly on the last two years of his life. It's titled The Last Charge of the Rough Rider Theodore Roosevelt's Final Days. Mr Hazelgrove takes us through TR's feud with President Woodrow Wilson. He wanted to form another Rough Rider soldier regiment and go fight in Europe. Wilson turned him down in spite of the fact that both the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House had approved Roosevelt's request. William Elliot Hazelgrove, what's a Rough Rider?
1: A uh, Rough Rider really um, is a cowboy slash outdoorsman slash even New York dilettante uh, came really from Roosevelt's years out west uh, when he went to the Badlands in 1883 and really became that cowboy that would haunt the White House later. And uh, when the war with Spain broke out, he went back and recruited these cowboys, but he also recruited Harvard men, Yale men, it was a strange smorgasbord of adventurers, quote, unquote, uh, that he brought together to go take with him. And you know, the newspapers just love this concept of the Rough Rider. To them, it was the sort of Uberman of America, uh, where one Rough Rider could take on 50 Spaniards or 100 Germans and win the day. So it was sort of this late 19th century, early 20th century ideal of the real American as an outdoor, hard-charging cowboy, even slash New York intellectual who can win the day. Um, so it's it's sort of an omnibus character of uh, late nineteenth, early twentieth century.
0: Well, in eighteen ninety-eight, what was the Spanish War about, and how did he get into it? What was he doing at the time?
1: Uh, he was actually under secretary of the navy. And uh, the Spanish American War, uh, you know, Roosevelt felt uh, that America needed a good war at this point. Um, and when the Maine was blown up in uh, Havana Harbor, uh, and actually it was later found out that it had, nobody had really sabotaged it and blown it up, uh, Roosevelt saw this as a perfect pretext to have this perfect little war with Spain. Uh, and he went and actually. Uh, resigned his post and you know just to back up a little he he had uh, sort of uh, secretary long had, had abandoned uh, the, the white house for the summer as a lot of people did at this time because it was just brutally hot swampy sort of you know very humid and left roosevelt on his own and roosevelt stoked up all the um the warships uh got them on war footing moved them around and when long came back Roosevelt had generated such a mini war fever that Long's hand was almost forced into this war. You could almost make a case that the war with Spain was Roosevelt's war. How long did it last? Uh, Actually not long, a few years, uh, and uh, of course it culminated in um, Roosevelt uh, going with the Rough Riders to Spain. and. You know a lot of people believe the Rough Riders were all on their horses charging up the hill but in fact only Teddy Roosevelt kept his horse they, they couldn't fit the horses on the Yucatan which was this sort of troop ship uh that went over there so most of the Rough Riders if not all of them were on foot and through you know confusion uh sort of separate serendipitous events Roosevelt ended up charging up this hill with with other You know, regular soldiers, too. We don't usually get that in history. Um, uh, The Buffalo soldiers as well, which were the African-American soldiers. And taking San Juan Hill and the Spanish just taking off. And basically Roosevelt declared, I won the war. The, The war is over. And the press, the Hearst newspapers picked up on this, ran with it. And Teddy Roosevelt came back in a very amazing way that you know, one man could be credited with winning the war with Spain, uh, but he was. And of course, this would be presidential gold for him uh, and push push him along uh, all the way up to the presidency, actually.
0: I assume when you said took it to Spain, you meant Cuba.
1: Yes. Yes. Sorry.
0: So how did you get? I know you've done other another book on Roosevelt, uh, and one on uh, Edith Wilson, the wife, second wife of uh, Woodrow Wilson. How did you get to this particular book? And what what's your what was your concept on this book?
1: Um, I thought it was, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's been extensively covered, but I, I felt like his latter years uh, had not been covered, uh, you know, really his last few years. And so I started to do a little research and then I started to stumble upon this quest of his to resurrect the Rough Riders and charge the Germans in in France in, in one final, last charge of the Rough Riders. And, you know, to most historians, this was dismissed. This was dismissed as this sort of crazy, uh, you know, scheme of Teddy Roosevelt at the end of his life. Um, but when I dove into it further, and I did a lot of research with newspapers, I found that this was not regarded as a crazy scheme. In fact, this was regarded as a valid way to take on the Germans, which, which is sort of amazing to us at a time when you had 50 caliber machine guns, tanks, flamethrowers, mustard gas, uh, men were dying by the thousands in this trench warfare, that Americans believe still that there was this sort of 19th century notion of warfare that, you know, real men could go over and win a war In particular Teddy Roosevelt could go over and win a war. And, and so it wasn't regarded as crazy. In fact, it went as far as Congress, House of Representatives approving Teddy Roosevelt to go over and fight the Germans with a, a division or two, 250,000 men. And again, uh, you know, Men were signing up in the thousands under Teddy Roosevelt. So this is regarded as a viable way to go either, you know, push the Germans back, let let the Germans know that we, America has arrived, or, or maybe win the war. Incredibly as that sounds to us now, men on horseback charging, uh, you know, the Germans in their entrenched in in positions and uh, potentially somehow getting them out of the trenches and getting into a retreat. It is incredible. But but if you look at the life of Teddy Roosevelt, he had done the incredible so many times that some people actually believe this was possible.
0: Where did you get your interest in history and how many total books have you written, nonfiction and fiction?
1: I really, uh, I had a professor, a doctor Sadler, uh, at the university I went to, and he. I I was I had no major. Um, I I was a big reader, but uh, I, I had no particular interest in history. But he was such a dynamic speaker. I immediately, immediately became very interested in history and switched my major. Then I uh, was going to go to law school, um, but honestly, I I just uh blew the LSAT twice, and so I have no logic, apparently. And then I uh, went and got a master's in history, and um, and I started to write a first novel. Now, I wrote 10 novels, and some of them toyed with history. I'm, I'm originally from Richmond, Virginia, and my grandfather managed Senator Byrd's campaign in 1946, left behind a scrapbook, so I wrote a book called Tobacco Sticks, which it really was about that campaign. Um, and then uh, I started to, uh, you know, I was reading narrative nonfiction, Eric Larson, and uh, I read Scott Berg's biography, Wilson. And he had a very interesting line in there where he said, you know, Ian Wilson was almost the president. And so I thought, what did he mean? So then I started to research, got the papers of Woodrow Wilson, and I found out that in fact she was the president and ran the country from 1919 to 1921. So I started with there um, with Madam President, The Secret Presidency of Edith Wilson, my first native nonfiction book, and haven't looked back. Uh, I think I'm up to 12, 12 books now. I'm to nonfiction and, and uh, 10, actually 12 or 13 and 10, 10 novels.
0: When I looked up uh, your books, I saw that Greed in the Gilded Age and Writing Gadsby both came out in the year 2022. How did you do that?
1: the pandemic (laughs) the pandemic uh really uh i know it seems like they're like cereal boxes now um what happened was i had signed contracts for various books that were supposed to be spaced out and uh when the pandemic hit every everything got frozen and so i spent the pandemic years writing these books and uh and then they just, they sort of backlogged. The publisher had these backlog titles and then they just released them one on top of the other. So it looks like I wrote, you know, one book and then wrote another. But in fact, I've been writing them for years. But again, they, uh, they were released very close together. And that just seems to be ever since the pandemic, that's been happening to me, um, where things seem to be released almost on top of each other. Um, but I am a narrative nonfiction writer. I you know my friend Jonathan Ing writes very large large uh history tomes that actually I enjoy reading but that's not the kind of books I write. I I take a slice of history and say this is this is some a, a little corner of history that maybe you don't know about and I'm going to shine a light into it and here's my thesis and let's go and so I'm going to write it in a way that you're gonna experience it and by the end you can make up your mind if I'm right or not and so that's my particular brand of history um, I you know I do enjoy reading grant or or any or the larger history books but that's my personal uh, enjoyment I don't write those type of books
0: we'll come back to some of the other books later but what schools did you go to? You didn't mention uh
1: the- I went to Western Illinois University for my master's and my undergrad.
0: And where do you live now? And why do you live there?
1: Oh, uh, I live in uh, actually a town called Campton Hills, which is outside of St. Charles, uh, 39 miles west of Chicago. Uh, I started in the city. Uh, my parents had moved there from Virginia. And uh, and then we moved to a park where actually, uh, I was Ernest Hemingway right in residence for a while in Ernest Hemingway's home uh, birthplace there. And then uh, with more children, uh, we moved further west to get a bigger house. And uh, here we are.
0: What attracted you to Ernest Hemingway?
1: I like a lot of uh, young writers. Uh, cut my teeth on all his short stories uh, and then his novels. Um, I sort of bounced between him and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, you know, and as you're learning to write, you know, you sort of emulate their style. Uh, and Hemingway, of course, uh, I really admired his his short stories, his chiseled prose, and and uh, and also his a little bit of his ethos is this, uh, you know, embracing the big outdoor, rec, you know, rigorous life at that time. Uh, when I moved out of Park, I I was aware that he had, this was his birthplace, but it wasn't the driving force. It just was. Oak Park is literally on the edge of Chicago uh, literally I was five blocks from the border between Chicago and, and Austin Avenue um, and so one day when I was walking to a coffee house I I took a tour of the house and I'd had a contract with Bantam to write my uh, third novel and uh, we had a baby in the house so I needed some space and when I took a tour I saw an, uh, the door to the attic and I just asked them I said straight up you know can i see that and they said okay and i looked at it and i said this would be a great place to write and of course the artist had me on my foundation said so, well that's not going to happen and then uh virginia casson who was the president at the time uh read my books and and realized that you know i was a, a literary writer of, of some serious intent at the time and and then she thought it'd be a good idea to have a writer in the house so that's how i ended up writing up there in the attic
0: Back to Theodore Roosevelt, he wrote in the middle of the book, on chapter 23, that he had the following illnesses, malaria, yellow fever, heart palpitation, rheumatism, infection in the ankle, high blood pressure, gout, Uh, he he was blind in one eye, left shoulder hurt all the time, overweight, and hacking pleurisy. How did the man survive?
1: Well, T.R. actually was a man who uh, learned to survive as a child. He had awful, awful asthma, uh, the kind of uh, asthma that killed people all the time at that time. And, of course, they had nothing that they could do for him. And uh, so he had to fight to breathe. Uh, and his father, this is in the book, would take him out for carriage rides at night in streets of New York and get the carriage up to full speed and have Teddy hang out the side. And then he would say, OK, Teddy, open up your mouth and trying to push air down into his lungs. So this is how desperate they were to to keep their son alive. So by the time Teddy Roosevelt uh, had these maladies toward the end of his life, he was well versed at struggling, to fighting to stay alive. Um, Uh, You know, I think that's one reason he was able to do many things he did physically that would have killed other people uh, was that because from the beginning, he had to fight for every breath and he was certainly fighting for every breath at the end.
0: Given what we're hearing today among our politicians, and as a matter of fact, this very day and yesterday in the middle of the Trump uh, indictment down in and charged down in Miami. I pulled together a lot of things that you wrote that TR, meaning Theodore Roosevelt, said about Woodrow Wilson in your book. Didn't say it in your book, but you cataloged it in your book. I'm just going to read through some of it. Sure. He called him a coward, a wimp, an egghead, a bumbling buffoon in the White House, spineless, this is a quote. I don't think he is capable of understanding what the words pride of country mean. To his son, Kermit, even the lily-livered skunk in the White House may not be able to prevent Germany from kicking us into the war. He also said instead of speaking softly and carrying a big stick, President Wilson spoke bombastically and carried a dish rag. Uh, in addition to that, he said um, when he wanted to take on Pancho Villa in a possible war with Mexico, I don't think this administration can be kicked into war, for Wilson seems about as much as a milk toast as Brian, meaning William Jennings Brian. Why all these epithets about Woodrow Wilson from Theodore Roosevelt?
1: Uh, Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt uh, had a long history, 1912, going back in 1912, when uh, basically Teddy Roosevelt came back and said, I want to be president again. And William Howard Taft was the, the nominee. And the Republicans said, no, no, we have our nominee. And T.R. said, no, I'm the most popular man in America, and I can beat this academia, uh, Princeton professor, uh, Governor of New Jersey, and uh, and so he entered the race after, after uh, Chicago marched off with the progressive wing of the Republican Party down to the Congress Hotel into the Gold Room and created the Bull Party. Well, as you know, when you split the party, chances are you're going to lose, and of course he did. The, the Republicans lost, and the Republicans never forgave him for that. For putting Woodrow Wilson to the White House, and from that moment on, I believe that is just the the core uh, you know, where Teddy Roosevelt really hated uh, he and Henry Cabot Lodge, who were best friends, loathed Wilson. They loathed his politics, uh, also he loathed the way Wilson would not declare. Uh, Germany was an enemy, uh, or and of course declare war on Germany as war simmered on the horizon, and and you know ships were sunk every time, including the Lusitania. Wilson would back off, you know, and say there, and of course his famous quote is, um, "There is such a thing as a man being too proud to fight," which just sent Teddy Roosevelt through the roof. So this antipathy began when he lost to Wilson. But continued through as, you know, Roosevelt's view Wilson was, he was antithetical to everything he held in high regard. Hard charging, take charge, aggressive warrior. Woodrow Wilson ab- abhorred war. Uh, he had seen Jeff Davis uh, paraded through his town in Staunton, Virginia after the Civil War. He understood what total war was. He didn't glorify war. In fact, he, he really was so reluctant to get into World War One because he knew he would have to face down all those mothers who lost their sons. And of course, the League of Nations it was his creation to end war for all time. you know. And, and, and Teddy Roosevelt did not even like his declaration, we're gonna make the world safer democracy. He just didn't buy it. He also believed Woodrow Wilson was venal and that he was actually a political animal in everything he did, everything he calculated for political impact. And, and they were just oil and water. They just were two different sides of the coin.
0: Uh, just a, a statistic for the record in 1908, Woodrow Wilson got 6.2 million votes. TR got 4.1 million. Taft got 3.4. And Eugene Gene Debs got 901,000. And, 1, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt got 27% of the vote, the highest of any. Uh, independent in the history of these elections right go back to there, in his life and you write about both of them there were there were two assassination well one assassination that was successful and one that was an attempt go back to the first one and before you talk about the assassination how did theodore roosevelt get picked to be mckinley's running mate
1: they really wanted to sideline Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was regarded as a loose cannon. Uh, he was regarded as odd. Uh, he didn't play ball in terms of politics. He, he, he would actually do what he thought was right and and consequences be damned. So to a lot of people in the party, uh, the Republican party, he was a thorn in their side. And at this time, you know vice presidents this was when vice presidents were parked and this is where politicians went to die so they really felt like they could ice teddy roosevelt by making him mckinley's vp uh you know and so that was really it i mean and it worked and teddy roosevelt was pretty much sidelined at this point uh when mckinley was assassinated um uh you know, shot, uh, Roosevelt was, I think up in the Adirondacks and, uh, you know, he gets a telegram saying McKinley is, is deathly ill. They McKinley lingered. Uh, they thought that the bullet, uh, they couldn't get the bullet. So they thought, well, hopefully it won't, you know, create septic infection. And so they stitched up his stomach and, and, uh, you know, thought, okay, everything's fine. But of course, uh, it wasn't fine. The infection took hold, and he quickly started to to go down. And so then Roosevelt, in this amazing journey back from the wilderness, literally through the night on top of a buckboard, which is very Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, where the horses are sliding all over the road, coming down these mountain roads uh, full speed, uh, nearly going off the road, with Teddy Roosevelt holding up a lantern to to you know guide the way. Uh, And then they put him in a train. He's rushed to McKinley's side, but McKinley expires. And Teddy Roosevelt, of 42, becomes the youngest president of the United States. And uh, I forget the gentleman's name who actually said it. It was a Republican senator. He said, oh, God, that cowboy is now in the White House.
0: And what was his first term
1: like? Uh, T.R.'s first term was... uh, marked by sort of setting the tone, uh, the, the tone of uh, a progressive president, but also a country that was coming into its own. This is why I believe uh, TR and the country were perfectly matched at this point. Yes, he was this swaggering cowboy who uh, would go for you know dips in the Potomac with his cabinet in the middle of winter, uh, he would hang from a cable over the Potomac to strengthen his wrist um, he, he was regarded as odd even as president, but people loved him because he was a swaggering presence and United States was now becoming this massive power uh in, in the early 20th century and it matched the country the the new country with the new president who was uh, you know going to build the Panama Canal, uh, send the white fleet around the world, take on the trust. Um, and this is TR. Uh, you know, when you there are a few recordings of his voice amazingly. And when you listen to him talk, it's like listening to this dense prose. And he talks a lot about the common man and about the money interests and how the money interests have to always be pushed back. And of course, he was of the patrician class, and this drove his class of people crazy that he didn't play ball in the way most politicians, if not all, did. Uh, Say what you will about Teddy Roosevelt, he always did what he thought was right, and he never regarded the consequences as any sort of deterrence.
0: What did you learn when you did your first book on Roosevelt in 2017, Forging a President? What was that? What was your mission there?
1: Okay, I had been reading uh, Edmund Morris's biography, uh, his trilogy on on Roosevelt, and it was the rise of Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and what what hit me was uh, when his wife and mother died on the same day, um, and he went west. And Morris covered this in about oh four or five pages, and then moved on as. A lot of historians do. They they sort of regard what, what what Roosevelt did at this point was he for the listeners, he basically went west. Uh he was bereaved. He you know people were worried about his sanity. Um in his diary he put a large X and just said the light went out of my life. And he basically left his current political life as an assemblyman and lit out for the Badlands. Now you know, a lot of historians treat it sort of like a glorified outward bound trip. But what I found when I did some research was no, he went out there as this skinny, grief stricken young man. Um, and he lived this incredible adventure out there and that would have killed many men, the things that happened to him out West. Um, but he returned. He returned the barrel chest of Teddy Roosevelt that we know. His voice even changed. He came back with his big cowboy mustache and this barrel chest and this big thick neck. And he had been transformed, which is a very American theme of the West. The West was, and this, this is why Remington and others were so concerned about the West, because the West allowed Americans to go out and transform themselves. You, you know, America, you can become anybody you want. And that's the big difference between us and, and Europe. And so in America, you can change your life. And, and if your life disintegrates, especially this happened a lot in the East, you could go out west. And if you could survive, you could reestablish yourself, become somebody else, and then reemerge. And that's what Teddy Roosevelt did. Three years later, he came back a very different man. And he said many times i could have never become president if i had not gone west and so that 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 western character that ethos of the cowboy which was you you know you you stick to your word you know you 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 have justice you you know you you mean what you say that he carried with him the rest of his life and that is very much a part of so the name of my book of course was fortune a president and i believe that i believe out west forged him into who he was. And certainly, certainly it created the ethos of the uh, rough rider. As
0: you all know, he was elected in 1904 on his own accord. <clears throat> he got 7.6 million votes. Alton Parker, 5 million votes. Why did he choose not to run again in 1908?
1: That's the great question, really. Uh, I I think... Um, Tr believed at that point that it was time to ha- hand it off that you know he w- he wanted to move on and, you know, and give it to William Howard Taft to continue on with his mission uh technically it would have been a third term and he didn't believe in that um, and and then there's just this question of he miscalculated, he he didn't really understand what life after the presidency would be like, which is for a lot of the gentlemen who become president and then go on, uh, it, you know, it it is not the same. You 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 were at the center of the world and then suddenly you're on the other side. And for a man like TR who basked in uh, the limelight, who, who needed activity, who needed to be part of the game, Uh, he didn't anticipate. You know, he went off to Africa on a safari and, uh, you know, found himself uh, in the middle of the night with, you know, these natives uh, cleaning elephants, literally sitting inside the carcass, and TR is sitting out there in, in the darkness and wondering what's going on in Washington. And then he found out that William Howard Taft was not really... Following what he saw as his agenda, and, and he used as convenient foil to say, "I'm coming back." And once Teddy Roosevelt made up his mind, he made up his mind. Now he said, "I'm the most popular man in America," and that was not a lie when he decided to come back. But it is a lot to overcome when you split a party. You have
0: quite a bit in here <clears throat> on his four boys that went to war. And I want to ask you about Teddy Roosevelt Jr., Kermit, Archie, and Quentin. What can you say about their background? And why was he so anxious to have his boys go to that World War I?
1: Teddy Roosevelt uh, re- regarded his father as a superman. Uh, he called him Braveheart, a greatheart, rather. But the one thing his father did. That he didn't approve of was he hired a substitute for the civil war and he didn't go teddy
0: or, roosevelt's uh, father
1: teddy roosevelt's yeah. father right, who was married to actually a, a southern woman so tr believed that your greatest moment the greatest moment for any man was in battle that he called it your crowd the, the crowded on and he also said Call uh, reference it as the wolf rising in the heart. So this to him was the epoch, the 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 summit of of being a man, but also the adventure, the great adventure. Okay, so for him, he leads. He found this in the war with Spain. He had his crowded hour. He had his moment, and he really wanted his sons to have that moment. Uh, that glory, that, that incredible larger-than-life moment of being in battle and, and, and experiencing the, the, the crowded hour, the, the crowded moment. And so when this war comes up, Teddy Roosevelt is very determined. All of his sons will go to war. And of course, he even uh, before war is declared, he gets them to go to Plattsville, where it was sort of a training camp for uh, men uh, run by General Wood, who actually was uh, the commander in uh, Spain with Teddy and the Rough Riders. And it was sort of a Boy Scout camp in a way. A lot of New York types would come to it. And, you know, a lot of the patrician class would send their their sons there and they would drill and, and, you know, camp out there and go through all this training, but it wasn't sanctioned by the government. And, but for Roosevelt, he felt like, you know, his boys were going any way he could figure it out. He was going to get them over there because he believed that was in their interests. He, he didn't regard it as particularly dangerous. Although of course it was, um, and he did talk about if they got killed, it would it would be you know still great honor. But these are you know sort of platitudes, and uh, and so the the of the four boys, they're pretty much the three are very similar in that they're picked up the tr motif, hard charging. Yes, I want to go. Quentin, the youngest, while he professes that, is very different. He's more of a sensitive uh, individual. Uh, he writes poetry. Um, he writes short stories. He speaks French very well. He has a bad back, and he has bad eyesight. And, of course, he joins, the and I'll call it the Air Force at this time, but it was really just what the United States had was a collection of planes and a few pilots and, uh, you know, and so they would rush them into training and then ship them over and hope that they would survive. Um, and of course, the survival rates were just abysmal. Uh, I think it was like seven days. And I think that was uh, for training. And I think it was like three or four days for being in combat. Um, so this was a very dangerous thing to undertake to become a pilot in 1917. and. Actually, the the military rejected Quentin. They said, you know, your eyesight is not going to work. But Roosevelt went to uh, Secretary of War Baker and said, can you do something here? And he did. And he got him in. Just
0: some context. Um, Um, Kermit lived to be 53 years old and committed suicide. T.R. Jr., or the third uh, lived to be 56 years old and had a heart attack. Archie had a stroke at age 85 and Quentin died at 20. How did he die?
1: uh, So he went through his training. He shipped over to France. Um, He went on training, several training missions, and then they went on a mission, ostensibly to cover, I think, a photography unit. And they mixed it up with some German planes. And these German pilots were massively experienced, massively experienced in dogfighting. And they just would later write that they, the Americans were just crazy. They would just come right at them and do foolish things and Quentin did this he apparently most of his unit broke off and was heading back and he turned back and went after the Germans uh, some of the fighter pilots and, and uh, an officer got him in his sights striped his plane and Quentin was actually shot through the head and went down um, And uh, and actually they ended up well, there's a photograph of him actually in, his, in the crash site, and of course this was not known uh, what happened. He was reported as missing, and then slowly the Germans let the Americans know that in fact uh, Quentin, they had you know found his dog tags and such like that, and and that Quentin had been killed.
0: Impact on Theodore Roosevelt.
1: The impact on, uh, TR was devastating. He had always made a great, a great, um, uh, show of saying, I want my sons over there. I want them to have this incredible, uh, moment that I had, the crowded hour. But when this happened, you know, the first thing he says, how will I tell Mrs. Roosevelt? And she, in fact, handled it better than he did. He, uh, one person said it took the boy right out of him. He was never the same. And he um he actually went to a speech after he'd heard that he'd been killed, he, he went to a gave a speech. But eventually when he returned, he went down to the stable where Quentin's old pony was still there. And that's where he broke down. And uh and the the impact of losing his son. And it was their youngest, it was uh he'd stayed in Sagamore Hill a long time. And like a lot of parents with the youngest, they, they really become special because they know this is it. And, uh, and Roosevelt never really came back from it. It just took the fight right out of him. And uh, yes, I, I believe that's one of the contributing factors to him going down so quickly.
0: Let me ask you about the structure of this book. 49 chapters it's not a thick book, but 49 chapters, and you date the year at the top. And I think I counted like 29 of those chapters or maybe more uh, were between 1917, roughly, some 1915, and then 1919, near the, when the year he died. But then you go back. You know, you might be reading along in 1917, and then the next chapter is 1898. What was your technique?
1: You know, I usually write on several tracks when I'm writing. And one thing that I like to try and do with Teddy Roosevelt, I wanted people to understand his life. I wanted them to understand what this big life was uh, and how he ended up where he was in the last two years. And to do that, I realized I would have to replay some of these incidents of his life. And I so I sort of took the moments that I thought most impacted him, sort of the highlights, if you will. And so what I do is I, I when I'm weaving it, uh, the narrative story, I try and lead from one moment in, say, 1917, and then reference, you know, something before, you know, like his, his carriage rides at night. Uh, you know, he's he's in 19... 19- 17 going to the White House. He's having trouble breathing on the train as as he leaves. And, and, you know, he goes back to when he was just this boy in, in Manhattan having these horrible asthma attacks. And again, I want people to understand, you know, what made this man. And there is no better way to do that, I felt like, than just giving him these vignettes, these stories of his life. And then at the end, it also coalesces. You know when he's he's at the end in the room in Sagamore Hill that night um, with James Amos and and you know and he's going to say we put out the light which were his last words. Um, I, I want people to feel the impact of this big life that he lived. You know we live in a time where people pull out pieces all the time, but it's a sense of simultaneity that gives us the whole picture and. And I think at times people may find that irritating that I do that, that I jump around a bit. But I believe that that informs the dialogue much more than if I did a straight linear run through the last two years of his life. Because that's not the whole picture. You have to understand TR in the compendium, in the, the entirety of his life, to understand who he is.
0: How long does it take you to write a book like this?
1: Well, there's the research and that's the longest part for me um, you know and usually what I'll do is I'll get an idea and I'll start researching it you know maybe I'll be working on something else but I'll I'll start researching that book and with with this I went back because I really wanted to know what was the perception of the public of the whole idea of going for this final charge of the Rough Riders I went back to Tons of newspapers, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles to look beyond, um, you know, what, what has been interpreted by other historians. I wanted to see how did people see this? Did they see this as ridiculous? Did they see this as viable? Him taking a regiment of raft riders to go charge the Germans? And again, what I found was that it was more than viable. And and also I would point out the Allies, okay, the, the French and the British were dying for him to do this. That they they you know lobbied Wilson and said, Look, uh, please send him over with that division. Please, you know, it's gonna take you guys they're barely hanging on. And they're like, it's gonna take Pershing a long time to get these two million men over here. So please send Teddy Roosevelt with his men. And and you know we that'll do a couple things. One, it will it will send a big signal that America's here. Two, it'll be a great shot in the arm for morale. And three, if he gets killed, we know you're in it forever. Then you know. So to so the to the French and the British, they desperately wanted this to happen. So there there was some method to the madness of this whole approach. And these things were revealed to me through the voluminous articles of of T. R. Uh, on on this. Char- last charge of the Rough Riders.
0: When I want to ask you about primary versus secondary sources. And I noticed, and you mentioned this earlier about Edmund Morris, I noticed there were so many sightings in the back to Edmund Morris. I counted them up, and then 207 times you used some information from Edmund Morris. Why do you do that, and how do you know he was Right.
1: Great question. Um, usually what I'll do is when I, I find something like and say Edmund Morris, uh, which I thought was just a fantastic trilogy, um, I'll I'll find something I think, oh that that looks good. And so then what I'll do is, you know, we live in the digital age. I'll I'll go running through either libraries or again newspaper accounts or something to, to back it up, to say, okay, what were the other views of this? And you know, a lot of my books, Titanic or even Greed in the Gilded Age, uh, there's a real lack of information in a lot of areas. And so the best I can do when I hit this, especially if I'm ra- reading, writing something about colonial America, is to go back and try and find letters or, again, uh, newspaper accounts that would back up what, say, Morris is saying. So then once I get some sort of validation, from some other source then or or several so what I like to do is have several sources. then I can kind of pick a middle row and go okay that that works that that makes sense and i and I'll you know I ran against it here, I ran against it there, and so uh, a lot of times I'll just say, okay Morris Morris is right here, and I'll run with that um secondary sources versus primary obviously primary is good uh in terms of just and that would be the newspapers the letters the diaries um. i'm always after verisimilitude the closest approximation of what is true but also at a point too i believe you you know you get you get this sort of general understanding and and you know a lot of people always look for the the manuscript in the trunk that nobody found or the or the letter that was unearthed that's not really what i'm after i'm after giving you a big view of something and saying, now here's a different way of looking at this, and here's how I'm going to put it together. And so by the end, you can make your decision if I'm right or not. And so you know, at a point you hit, you know, uh, Edmund Morris, unfortunately, with Dutch, um, research too long, but 14 years, and I believe that he filled rooms with research, and it just overwhelmed him. And I think as a Historian, writer, narrative nonfiction writer—you have to be careful to not let the forest overwhelm you because you have to pick a path through and go. This is what I'm going to say, and I'm going to use these sources to do it. I think once you get—if you let too much in—you you can be in danger of. Well, Eleanor Morris had writer's block for years, so
0: Theodore Roosevelt was out of office starting in 1908. Um wanted to be president again. But question to you, because this is the mission of this book, when did he decide, that he wanted to form another rough rider regiment or division or brigade or whatever, and go back into war and go to Germany and take on the Germans in World War I?
1: Uh, That's a great question because I always always sort of look, where did this start? Actually, it started with Mexico. With Pancho Villa running around, and uh, uh, and basically what was happening was these incursions into Texas and such from these uh, these sort of renegades uh, in Mexico. So so Wilson sent Pershing down to 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 find him, and what happened was Teddy Roosevelt then immediately wrote. Uh, oh, no, this isn't Wilson's. This is Taft, actually. He immediately wrote Taft. Look, I can get Rough Riders together uh, um, and we can, you know, take a force down there and get them. Um, I, I can do this. So he very early saw this sort of extra military force at his disposal that could be resurrected and could be put into service. Um, you know, and again, it was sort of this, you know, this happened in the Civil War somewhat. with you know, There were these sort of regiments and such that were beyond the government that were participating. But then when it came to uh, World War I, uh, there was a very early letter uh, to uh, Secretary of War Baker that he, he sent. And this uh, probably goes back to 1916, where he said, listen, I, I don't know if war is going to come yet. Um, but i feel like it is and i would like permission to form a division to take there and he outlined this division he said you know we'll have a cavalry a large cavalry unit we will have medical uh you know we'll have some artillery and the sad thing about the letter is that you could see that his concept of warfare had not had not progressed he still believed in a massive cavalry charge and he wasn't alone. Most Americans did not register what was going on over in Europe in World War I. They did not understand trench warfare. They did not understand the mechanized death of the Industrial Revolution. That the warfare had changed from one man being able to 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 change the course of a war, a battle, to you know this impersonal slaughter where people were more like Henry Ford's workers. You did one thing, and that was you were cog in a machine. And most Americans were totally ignorant of that. And they still believed that cavalry charges, uh, men who, you know, put their saber up and said, follow me, could win the day. And so really, I'd say back 1915, 1916, he he was already contemplating this force to go to Europe. And when war broke out with the Germans, you know, he was following very closely the sinkings of the ships by the German submarines. And, again, this is when he started to just put Wilson on the proverbial spit and use all those names that you referenced before and needle him into going into war. How did he get the House
0: and Senate to say, yes, you should be able to go to war, and then why did Wilson say no?
1: Henry Cabot Lodge was Teddy Roosevelt's best friend. And, again, he loathed Wilson as much as More than Roosevelt Because Lodge and Wilson Were a lot alike They both thought they were The smartest man in the room And so when Roosevelt Approached Lodge and others And said you know Can we get this through Congress Can you put a rider On to the conscription bill Basically uh, Lodge fought that battle And he had a lot of people Who did not want that rider attached And Lodge Strong-armed him And basically said, this is a man who's given his life, who's given his service to the country. All he wants to do is have his final moment, his final moment of glory. And, and he basically pushed it through. He, he called in every favor, and he got the House of Representatives to approve that amendment, that rider to the, uh, the conscription bill, which authorized the use of men, and, and became a tripwire. All Wilson had to do was sign it. And then Teddy Roosevelt could go on. It basically allowed volunteer regiments to go. But it was called the Teddy Roosevelt Amendment, or the writer. And so that's all Woodrow Wilson had to do. So it's on Wilson's desk. And Teddy Roosevelt has gone to visit him several times to pitch him on the whole idea. And Wilson's very cold, then he warms up to him. And he's very cagey, never gives an answer. And the newspapers are. If you were in America at the time, you would have thought Teddy Roosevelt was was going. I mean, the, the headlines were Roosevelt House approves Roosevelt ready to go. Rough Rider's going to take his two hundred fifty thousand men, his division over to France. So you would have thought the Boy Scouts went to Sagamore Hill. He promised them he'd carry the Boy Scout flag to France. So he was ready to go. What Wilson, in the final analysis. And he Woodrow Wilson was reading all these newspapers, and there was editorial after, after editorial saying he should let Teddy Roosevelt go. There was a few against it saying this is ridiculous, but most of them said go. Woodrow Wilson, the final analysis, said no. No, this is a war of professionals. Warfare has changed. This is not a war for men who are amateurs. Men who fought in another war twenty years before. This is a war that's going to require everything, and we can only use professionals. Uh, and he he actually sent Teddy Roosevelt a personal telegram saying, "You know, I like you basically, which was a lie. But uh, but but I cannot let this happen. I cannot cannot allow you to go now. Why did Wilson do that? That's the great question. You can come down in several ways. Uh, one is, it really didn't make sense. You know, this was going to require millions of men to push the Germans back in a final offensive, and, and having this Rough Rider regiment go over there with Teddy Roosevelt at the, at the lead on a white stallion it was made no sense. Two, he didn't want a dead president on his hands, and most surely he probably would have had one. And three, Teddy Roosevelt might have survived. And the Germans, while maybe not retreating, might have been stunned. And even if they just stayed in their trenches and Teddy Roosevelt survived, it would be a great feather in his cap and the rough Rider, whatever. And, you know, the military establishment did not want Teddy Roosevelt to go. Why? Because they remember in the 1898, how he declared he won the war, how he took the press and ran with it, um, how he never followed orders. And Wilson actually referenced this. He said, you know, we need men who are disciplined, who can follow orders, not men who go their own way. And this was Teddy Roosevelt. So you could take a very cynical view and say, well, there was a 1920 election coming and Roosevelt was the Republican bandit about choice. And Wilson, if you say he's a political animal, and this is, this was Roosevelt's view why he said no, was that ultimately it was a political decision because he thought that if he went over there, his star would rise again, and he would become president in 1920. And that was Roosevelt's view, that that's what Wilson did to him. And and also he believed that Wilson took revenge on him for all those years of needling him, for all those years of just hammering him. Why are you not attacking the Germans? Why are you not declaring war on the Germans when all these people are dying in the Lusitania and, and Roosevelt wrote these very vivid editorials saying the babies are in the black muck from Lusitania, you know, demand you do something, and, and yet you're off running around with your, your your second wife, your young second wife, and, you know, he just never gave a break. So you could also take the view that Roosevelt, that Wilson did take this revenge on him, but I don't know if Wilson's more venal as venal as that. I think he he... Was probably more coldly calculating and said, "No, this won't work. This is this is not part of the plan to go over and and push the Germans back in a massive offensive." You uh, have a quote in the book
0: <clears throat> that T.R. said to Henry Cabot Lodge. This is about Wilson. He is yellow all through in the presence of danger, either physically or morally, and I just as a quick question is why would Woodrow Wilson tell him he liked him under those circumstances and all the other stuff he said about him?
1: You know, I probably shouldn't use the word like. I should say that he he used the language to say that he admires him and, and that his force of personality, and yet he cannot allow that to influence his decision. And, and Secretary Baker also sent him a letter, uh, Secretary War Baker, saying you know, I personally wouldn't mind you going over there, basically, but I cannot let that influence the decision that is, has to be made to win the war. So, you know, in one sense, they, they, they recognize the power Teddy Roosevelt has over the American people, the romantic view of the Rough Riders, and how, yes, you could make a case for propaganda-wise, it might not be a bad thing. For him to go over there if Teddy Roosevelt had gone and he had been killed, well, then that would really galvanize the American public. And by the way, the Germans held Teddy, reg- Teddy Roosevelt in high regard, super high regard, so much so that when war broke out, war was declared, a German count came to his office in New York and clicked his heels and presented Wilson a letter from the Kaiser saying, you know, No hard feelings, basically. We hold you in high esteem, and we're so unhappy with the way events have turned. So the Germans, and also, by the way, when Quentin died, they had a full funeral for him with a regiment lined up around his plane and him. And so they had great respect for Roosevelt. And this, too, would have factored in if Roosevelt had gone and charged the Germans. You have a chapter on this.
0: In nineteen twelve when Theodore Roosevelt was running for president on the Bull Moose ticket. He was shot in Milwaukee by John Schrank. Who was Schrank and why was he trying to kill Theodore Roosevelt? And of course, he had a strange reaction once he was shot. Tell that story, please.
1: Yeah, um, so Schrank was a, a bartender, a saloon keeper and he was drinking beer, smoking jackpot cigars, and he had a dream where McKinley rose up and said, you, you shall avenge my death, nobody should serve a third term. And so he waited for Roosevelt outside the Milwaukee Coliseum and Roosevelt got into a 16-seater car and was sitting there And there were people behind a rope line Outside the hotel he was going to go give a speech And Schrank walks up Roosevelt thinks he wants to shake his hand Roosevelt stands up Schrank pulls out I think it was a 38 And shoots him in the chest The bullet goes in through his glasses case A big army coat he was wearing Folded manuscript Goes in and lodges in his room Teddy Roosevelt, uh, immediately Shrank is wrestled down. Teddy Roosevelt says, bring him over to see me. He, he brings him over, he stares into Shrank's eyes, thinks he deceives insanity, and he says, why'd you do it? Shrank says nothing, and then Roosevelt says, take him away. Well, everybody around says, look, we have to take you to the doctor, we have to get to the hospital. Roosevelt says, nonsense. I came to give a speech, I'm going to give a speech. So they go to the Milwaukee Coliseum. He goes up, he says, friends, I, I have to give a speech, but I have to tell you, I've just been shot, and so bear with me. And so he opens his coat, shows him the bloody shirt, and he speaks for 90 minutes leading into that coat after being shot. And then, you know, he gets to the end, and he says, well, I'm just going to speak for just a little bit more, and he speaks for another 15. Uh, So then he walks back off, and then he says, you can take me where you want and so they rush him to the hospital they realize the bullet uh, has burrowed itself down uh, into what they hope is harmless tissue they can't reach it Uh, he gets on a train that night shaves sleeps on the way to Chicago they go to another hospital in Chicago they check him out again and they come to the same conclusion you're gonna carry that bullet for the rest of your life but he gets to uh, issue the great Proclamation during the speech of saying it takes more than a bullet to kill a bull moose. uh he goes up in the polls for a while, of course, from this, but it's not enough uh but yeah he he gave a speech for ninety minutes without while bleeding under his coat several years ago,
0: I saw the shirt that he was wearing with the hole in it and in all places, Medora, North Dakota. Whereas yeah. you know he went out to be when he was out in the wilderness, but I wonder if you by chance know what happened to the glass case or the speech with the hole in it?
1: I thought I saw, I heard that it was in the Smithsonian, but I could be wrong on that uh, because I've seen many, many pictures of it. Yeah, um, uh, but yeah, I've never personally seen it. I'm amazed the shirt survived. <laughs> you know, no, it's
0: odd because it's a white shirt and there's just this you know, about the size of a dime hole in it. And they had it on a, a mannequin sitting there in the little museum. Yeah. Um, we're, we're about out of time, but I there was one of your books I wanted to ask you about, because I don't know if there have been very many books written about this man at all, and that's Henry Knox. And you wrote a book in 2020, Henry Knox's Noble Train. It, it Was that a, a a novel or a uh, fiction? Uh, uh, no, it's,
1: it's narrow nonfiction. And again, I, I was reading David McCullough's book, seventeen seventy six, and he had a page or two where he said this young bookseller went and dragged these cannons back to George Washington uh, that he used on the British. So I investigated further, and what I found out was the British are holed up in Boston. Washington has taken over this ragtag army. He has no artillery. But up in Fort Ticonderoga, there's 60 tons or 120,000 pounds of artillery. Henry Knox is a local bookseller who leaves his bookstore with his pregnant wife. He puts her in a little town, meets Washington. And Knox is this very can-do type of individual. And, you know, Washington says, you know, I need somebody to go get these these cannons, and all Washington's war cabinet, is that's crazy. It's over frozen mountains, lakes, the Berkshire Mountains, uh, you know, up just below Canada, it's impossible during this brutal winter. But Knox says, I can do it. And so he takes his brother, and they take sleds and oxen, and they go up and get these cannon and float them down uh, Lake George, and then get the oxen and the sleds, 45 of them, uh, these sleds and these oxen, and pull and drag them all the way down across the Hudson four times, up over the Berkshire Mountains, down to Boston, where Washington puts them up on Dorchester Heights, and they bomb the British, and the British leave Boston, giving the Americans the first victory of the Revolution.
0: And he becomes eventually the Secretary
1: of War. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, did, did, yeah. How did the book do? It came out in the middle of the pandemic, as you know, and uh, it's 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 made its way. I, I got the distinguished book award from the Colonial uh, Society of America in New York uh, for it, um, which was great. And it's it's one of those stories that practically nobody knows. When I when I decided I wanted to do the book, there are no books on him there's nobody about what on henry knox there is, but nothing on this noble train and the reason it's called the noble train is because knox left behind a diary he kept while he was on this expedition and he wrote to washington from the wilderness and said i'm on the way with your noble train of artillery and knox's whole expedition broke down in the berkshire mountain and the teamsters he was using said, "We're done. We're done. You, we we can go no further. We, we can't go up these mountains with these 120,000 pounds, which is eight loaded SUVs." And and Knox gives a speech, and he and he says, "We aren't doing this for us. We're doing it for the unborn millions yet to come." And he gets them moving again, <laughs> amazingly, and they drag these cannons over. So. So, you know, these men of history who who, who do these incredible things, and I've read enough books now where I finally believe in destiny. It has to be. When you read about Teddy Roosevelt and everything endured out west, all the close shakes, why he survived, you know, there's that great story of him uh, in Cuba after the battles fought, and he deceives the Merrimack wreck out in the bay, and he says, oh, Lieutenant, I'd like to go out and look at that. Come on, we're going to go swim out to it. And so they start swimming they're surrounded by sharks. And this general on shore is jumping up and down, and the lieutenant, uh, and, and Roosevelt's annoyed and says, what is he saying? And lieutenant, they're now surrounded by sharks. And the lieutenant says, he's saying they're sharks, sir. And Roosevelt says, I've done a thorough study of sharks. And it's all poppycock that they'll ever attack a human. They go out to the Merrimack. Roosevelt clambers all over. It looks at it. The shark wait for him. They're all waiting for him, these massive, you know, hammerhead sharks. They get back in the water, and the general on shore starts jumping up and down again, and Roosevelt's highly annoyed, and yet they come out without a scratch. That's Teddy Roosevelt. And that's uh,
0: our discussion with William Elliott Hazelgrove. The name of the book is The Last Charge of the Rough Riders, or actually it's The Rough Rider. And uh, the subhead is Theodore Roosevelt's Final Days. Thank you very much for being with us
1: for an hour. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org we